0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of IGN Unfiltered, where I get to chat with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry. Today we are, if the background has not made it obvious, we're at Valve, uh, here covering Half-Life Alex all month long as part of IGN First. And I am pleased to be joined by Chris Remo, Robin Walker from the Half-Life Alex team. Guys, uh, thanks for having us.
1: Absolutely, thanks for coming out.
0: So uh, you two have each had very interesting careers, very different trajectories that have led you to where, where you are now. Uh, but I kind of want to start just more in general with, with Alex itself uh, as, a, as a VR product. Is, is the goal of it to be the killer app for VR that I know, like, I've been waiting for a, a, a thing that makes me want to have to have VR for a long time. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, we wanted to make the best VR
2: game we could, uh, and we felt like you know, we could deploy the sort of resources that you needed to Uh, to build something of the scope that uh, people look at and say, you know what, that's the thing that causes me to want to get aboard some platform that I may not be on right now. So uh, it was sort of always there, but it was not really sort of the explicit thing we're focusing on too much, I guess. It's not really
0: how we think about things so much. How has the internal reaction been to the fact that the index has been just selling out repeatedly ever since the game was uh, officially announced in December. Uh,
1: Extremely good.
0: uh, And also extremely depressing uh, in that (laughs) we'd really like to be able to make a lot more. So has it been kind of according to plan, like you figured, all right, these are gonna start moving or is it
1: more just like, whoa, we did not adequately prepare for this? We didn't have, you know, a specific target we were trying to meet or something. I mean, the index, really it exists to be you know, to fill a particular desire in the in the VR sort of community, I suppose, yeah. in the sense that it's like, you know, it's a high-end, very high fidelity, uh, extremely advanced VR option, and we wanted to be able to provide that for people who are bought into VR who want the, you know, highest end VR option. And it's yeah. we didn't. It, it's not so much a case of Valve needs to expand its hardware dominance or something. Like there isn't any. Like, that that isn't really part of the conversation at all. So we didn't have specific numbers where we're like, we must reach this multiple and then Half-Life Alex will increase the curve of the graph. Um, it's been awesome to see that people want it. And as Robin says, frustrating that we can't <laughs> meet, meet the demand as easily as we'd like. But, you know, it, it really is to, is to serve a particular, like, chunk of the VR community as well as we possibly can.
0: So I know uh, Mark Laidlaw is not here anymore, but I'm sort of curious, is there... Like, it, over at 343, there's a Halo Bible. Is there sort of, a, is there sort of an internal document f- that sort of lays out the Half-Life universe and,
1: and who's in it and where it could go from here? Or I'm going to stop you a- like after, is there an internal document? Yeah. <laughs> and like you can fill in the rest of that question with any subject you want. <laughs> <With> anything <laughs> I'm going to say, no, there's no. not. <laughs> Are you- but there's a lot of institutional knowledge. Like, there's yeah. a huge amount of institutional knowledge, and um, like, I'm not one of the primary writers on this game, but I have been involved in like writing bits of sort of environmental storytelling and things like this. And there's definitely like groups of people in the studio who have been here for a long time, who know this universe deeply, who you can always like send an email to or walk over to their desk and be like, hey, you know, I was thinking about this. Like, does that fit in your notion of what? Either already did or could happen yeah. in this world, and that's like an incredible thing and, to have access to.
2: And Mark, Mark's sort of a person who just needs to write, uh, and so he wrote pieces throughout the development of Half-Life, uh, one and two. But those pieces were often more sort of setting or mood pieces. That if you're working on the team, you'd read it and it would give you a sense of sort of what sort of feel we should be going for. And Then the actual execution of a lot of the story in our games tends to come like most things at the company from, you know, distributed throughout the team all over the place. So, you know, when we started to think carefully around some of the things we wanted to do with Alex in Half-Life Alex, the people we went and talked to about does this make sense for our character and stuff are the people who, the animators who animated her heavily the um, people who built the levels that she's in and stuff like that, because they contributed as much to the sort of the Alex from Half-Life 2 that people are aware of as much
0: as, you know, Mark did uh, in his writing. Um, is it true that Warren, this is more since Chris, you're newer to Valve, I'm going to aim this more uh, Robin's way. Is it true that Warren Spector was working on an episode three at one point?
2: Not in episode three, but he was, uh, we worked with Warren and his group of folks like, the name of the actual company escapes me at this point, sorry. It was a, it was a junction uh, point by yes. then? Yes, thank yeah. you. Um, uh, on an episode of Half-Life, uh, you know, at that time we weren't quite sure, um, you know, we, we didn't think of it as episode three, but we felt like we were big fans of Warren Spector and, stu- and the stuff he's worked on, and so yeah. we thought that if, uh, if we could find a way for, to work with them and they built something neat, we'd figure out how to fit it into
0: you know, the set of products that we were imagining at the time. I'm curious, back in the day, was uh, wh- where did the idea for the Orange Box come from and putting all this stuff <laughs> into one into one spot? And did anyone try to tell that person that they were nuts for, for uh, doing all of that in one um, $60 package? Uh,
2: no, I mean, the Orange Box is interesting. Um, and I, I will get probably a detail or two wrong on this, but the, the, it's an it's a very interesting choice because it's not i don't think it comes from the place people assume it comes from it came from what's essentially an internal problem which was um up until that point we had only ever made one game at a time or or, well sorry i should have cracked that we had only ever shipped one game at a time yeah uh, so, you know, we really had to, whenever in the company's history, we had multiple th- games going on at the time, when one of them started essentially entering the, all right, now we're going to ship, like, you know, it might be six months out, like, we're going to take this and we're going to finish it and ship it. Most of the other game teams sort of slowed down and then the final month or so might essentially stop to just pile on and help. Because when you're, you know, if you're on one of those other teams and looking at how you can spend an hour of your time, when you're when a product's at the end and you understand it perfectly, you can usually generate so much value in just one hour of work fixing the right bug, just putting the final you know, bit of polish on something, that it's hard not to uh, just feel like, oh wow, I, I, I could help so much if I just went over and helped. So we've got a company full of people who are really used to doing that, and then we're built, you know, we're working on these three different games: Team Fortress 2, Episode 2. Um, and portal thank you Uh, and looking at like oh man for the first time it looks like all these are sort of going to finish around the same time how are we going to handle this so that was one thing problem we're struggling with another problem we've got is the case of portal which is a product that we are really excited about we think it's really interesting but you know there wasn't a whole lot of first person shooter puzzle games out there to look around at and uh, we were bringing people in and playtesting it as we always do, and they were really enjoying it. But we were getting no, not really any close to thinking of, to figuring out how do we talk to people about this? How do we, how do we explain it to people? And so there was this. It was also shorter uh, than yeah. than uh, a triple. So you've got these various problems swirling around inside the studio, and one of the realizations. Uh, and we were running into we started running into a bit of problems with, um, you know, like each of these groups not quite getting the. Having all the um, sort of gr- they needed to finish their product, and so because we're distributed, yeah. and so we're looking at do we try and sh- essentially sort of stop two of these and finish one? And we realized, like, well, how what if we essentially create one product? Uh, we know that as a company, we work really well when all individ- when every individual sort of optimizing locally. you know, working on the thing they think is most valuable for the product they're on. So we thought, well, if we make one product that we're all part of, then if you happen to be working on TF2 and you realize that, oh, portal struggling or vice versa, then you're not, you know, hurting your product by jumping over and helping them, you've got to get over there because they, you don't ship if they're not ready to ship either. And so it was sort of a company level hack on how do we get all these people to consider themselves one big product, so they ship. in the end, it caused you know, an enormous number of problems that we just didn't anticipate. Like um, you know, Just to pick a couple of ones that were interesting, uh, retail had no idea what to do with it at that point because we're still dealing with retail as a big channel at that point. Yeah. You know, to them, bundles of products are either old or bad games. No one ever bundles right. a set of new great games, uh, so that was really confusing. Um, you know. Uh, we had five different games on one CD, and so Xbox's system of tying achievements to CDs right. just blew up. <laughs> and they're like, you can't have that. Many. So we, had, I think they had to write custom code for us for that. Um, you know, it was a, oh, and building TV ads was a nightmare because you have a thirty-second TV ad to explain all three really good games in this, and then of course, just because we could, we threw in all the old games too. So there were another. <laughs> so yes, yeah, was, uh, you know, there were some people on the. Sort of messaging or marketing side here, who were sort of screaming at the uh, when we hit the point of trying to explain
0: that product to people. So yeah, good times. That's a really good story. That's really good. Um, <clears throat> so Chris, you, you know, you were in games media. You were doing what I'm doing before yep. uh, for for a while there. So what when you jumped uh, over to the other side and joined uh, Irrational 2010. Mm -hmm. What was the thing that surprised you most about kind of being on the outside of development versus crossing over to the inside?
1: Huh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I think I was, I I mean, this, uh, you know, I hope this doesn't come off as um, in a way that makes me seem like deluded or something, but I, I think I was less surprised than I might otherwise have been after spending so the, the second half of my game journalism career was at Sutra, which is an industry-facing yeah. uh, uh, site. And I, I weirdly at that point had a lot of friends who um, worked in game development and I was accustomed to dealing with developers a lot. Actually, the first, place, the first game studio at which I ever interviewed was Valve at Robin's invitation. <laughs> in 1998, Robin flew me up here to interview at Valve and I was clearly not qualified to work at Valve. <laughs> I don't even remember entirely why you thought that was like Potentially a valuable, valuable idea, but um, so I feel like I was sort of kind of surrounded by that world a little bit already. But it definitely, you know, the thing that's that's very different is, or one of many things that's very different is, uh, particularly, you know, at a big AAA studio like Irrational, you have all these people and you're all working together on something that is essentially a a long-term collaborative creative project, and that's that's very different to how it felt. Um, particularly doing online journalism, you know, where you're turning things around very quickly, and you're reaching a very big audience every single day. You know, as you well know, like you're you're, you know, turning things around very very fast. Um, but there's also and but there's also ways in which I think that really prepared me well for game development in the sense that, you know, when you put something out, you're getting feedback on it immediately. Like you're constantly right. synthesizing that feedback and determining. What is useful and what's not useful, and what can I learn from this? And and that is also just kind of what game design is in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you're, it's just that you're doing it with playtesters and and internally as opposed to shipping things to the public every single day. Um, so I, I, I sort of honestly, it's easier for me to think about what is similar between them, even though they're fundamentally different crafts and jobs. Um, I, I've always spent more time thinking about what is the like, what did I learn from each that sort of feeds into the next thing, I guess.
0: Now, Robin, for you, you came to Valve, you came to professional game development as a, as a modder, as a, you know, I, I mean it respectfully, an amateur game developer. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, Very amateur. What uh, What was, like, when you first started doing Team Fortress for Quake, long before Valve reached out to, to uh, hire you, what was sort of your big dream at that point? Uh,
2: I don't even think I really had a dream. I was just building a game that seemed really fun. I mean, uh, you know, I'd, I'd messed around making games and so on beforehand myself, um, but you know, this is long before there are there are things like Unity or Unreal or yeah. any sort of uh, thing that made that easy. And so, um, you know, like had a bunch of friends and we played a lot of multiplayer games every weekend and had big LAN parties and uh, and we. You know, made lots of games ourselves, I think, board games and we'd done Doom modding and so on like many other people and Mm -hmm. then when um, it announced that they were going to release Quake C, I remember we were, you know, we started thinking about what sort of stuff we might want to do. We played some various Doom mods we really liked Um, and uh, so the day Quake C came out, you know, I think we downloaded that and started immediately working away at it and I don't, we had land parties at that point, filled with lots of different people, and so we just started. It seemed really obvious to us that you would build uh, sort of a class-based system that, that um, you know, attempted to accommodate all the various sort of types of people we had and the skill sets they had and that sort of stuff. At that point, it feels daft in retrospect, or maybe it's just a sign of the the differences in times. It never occurred to us that that would lead to a game development job. I'd never met anyone in the games industry, I didn't know anyone in the games industry. Um, I found out sort of the extent and you know of the game, the Australian games industry like you know after I had already left Australia uh, and there were lots of great people there doing cool stuff but I unfortunately never met any of them. Uh, so yeah in in, in all honesty I think we were essentially in the games industry by the time you know, we would even really occur to us, um, so yeah. yeah, we didn't know what we were doing though. <laughs> and in retrospect, when I look back on that, like after Team Fortress 1, where we started to think about, hey, hey, you know, by then we'd have enough people tell us, like, this is cool and we'd love to play more stuff you make, that we started thinking about, you know, tried to form the company and started to work on our own stuff. Uh, you know, when I look back on that time now, it's like, wow, i you know, we threaded the needle of possibility <laughs> to get developed the because there were so many sharks or minefields around us that we weren't even aware of at the time. Um, you know, like as an amateur indie studio trying to get a game onto a retail shelf, there's an, inno- that there was, you know, that would have essentially been impossible for us at that time and yeah. we just didn't know it. Whereas today, of course, you know, you can just
0: put it on the internet and you're good to go. So did uh, did those land parties turn into like basically Team Fortress coding design parties. Uh, y- like, yeah yeah. I mean, was there more sort would, of development that happened than playing? Uh, there was a lot
2: of playing. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <big> <laughs> clear. We were sort of bizarrely huge deathmatch fans, very into competitive gaming. We used to compete a lot in the Australian, you know, competitive scene and that sort of stuff. At, like deathmatch, non-Team Fortress. Yeah. Uh, and so we we would play a lot of that, but we'd also play a bunch of Team Fortress and it was great. I mean Chris mentioned playtest early earlier, you know, we'd have weekends where a bunch of people would show up at the house and we'd have a build ready that would have a bunch of changes from the previous week. And we'd start playing and we'd be making, you know, every half an hour we'd break, make code changes, go back in again. And so it was sort of like this like live you know, play playtesting you know, creation process
0: that was often a lot of fun. That's cool. Uh, so when Valve finally does pick up the phone. To say we want to hire you. Do you remember that moment? Like, was that was that a sort of transformative moment for you, or was it just sort of just the natural like, okay, yeah, the natural <laughs> next step? <laughs> uh, interestingly, it wasn't actually Valve that contacted us at first. It was
2: uh, Scott Lynch, who's now at Valve, but uh, he was at Sierra at the time, and he okay. was instrumental in bringing Half Life to Sierra. And he was looking for other ways that they could make you know Half Life even bigger and more interesting. And so, uh, so he contacted us and.
0: Uh, flew us out and, and we you know, met with the Vell folks then. Now, Chris, I got to ask you, we're, I'm a fellow big fan of, of Tim Schafer and Ron Gilbert. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, what was it like working? I mean, you co-wrote uh, The Cave with Ron Gilbert. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like?
1: Uh, it was really, really great. I, had, I have really fond memories of, of, of working with Ron on that, on that game. Um, yeah, it was very surprising when he asked me to write it with him, and I was extremely nervous about it <laughs> and gratified. But I will say for someone who, like he made, in a lot of ways, he sort of defined what graphic adventure games were. I feel like he sort of defined the the period of adventure games that started in the late 80s with, Mon- uh, well, I guess early 90s with Monkey Island 1, yeah. but also Maniac Mansion going back a few years and uh, Monkey Island 2. And for someone who, you know, is, is that important and influential on a genre that i grew up with and really loved i found him to be an incredibly pleasant and gracious person to collaborate with i like really could not ha- he could not have been more generous in, in in that in that partnership it was really a really enjoyable time yeah he's uh he's the best and thimbleweed park was so good Thimbleweed Park was so good so
0: good. Yeah. I, every i still get tweets from people that are like I, f- I finally took your recommendation and played it and it's so good it's
1: like play thimbleweed yeah, park my, my wife and i played through that together and she's not like a game person, so it was uh, it was cool to you know have have something like that that she was that into as well. Yeah. So, um, Chris, you came to Valve obviously as
0: part of the the Campo Santo acquisition in 2018. So almost a couple of years ago now. And did did you ever think that you would be working on a Half Life game? Uh,
1: no, I did not. <laughs> uh, no, I feel like Robin's like minefield oh. minefield minefield and shark analogy is just how I feel like my entire like professional life has just been sort of obliviously swimming through sharks. I feel like one of the worst parts about getting older is that your like shark detectors get super like real. I'm like, oh, there's sharks everywhere. And like, I was much happier when I was just like, didn't know there were any sharks and yeah, I never would. And like, you know, I never, part of that is like, I never could have, I was so naive. Like I wouldn't have ever dared to like predict anything that would have happened, yeah, this this was totally shocking to me. Like I said earlier, you know, I interviewed here in 2008 and, uh, you know, was just so profoundly unqualified to work here. It would definitely not have occurred to me to think I would, you know, more than a decade later end up here, like suddenly. It was really surprising. But I mean, I'd, you know, Half-Life One was an incredibly formative game for me, like, like deeply, deeply, deeply informed how I thought about what, how games can communicate, what they can communicate and how they can communicate it, especially the latter. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I, 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 no, I, I absolutely never would have assumed that this would have worked out the way it did.
0: Well, on that note of, of it, of the original Half-Life and sort of informing the way you look at games and uh, for both of you guys, I'm sort of curious what, you know, with Alex, when this airs, I think the game will be out or about to come out, um, how, what is the goal? How does Half-Life Alex try to move the first-person shooter genre forward?
2: I mean, I, I think that, well, the first-person shooter genre is a very broad genre, uh, but in with respect to Half-Life, there's definitely a set of pieces of Half-Life that we think are sort of what we think of as the DNA of the Half-Life experience that turned out to work very, very well in VR, like more so than we expected And when we started. And when we started, there were some things that we already knew worked well. Uh, and, and over time, it was sort of a process of finding out, oh, wow, this wor- this works even better than we thought, too. Um, and because, so I can describe a bit of this. So to us, Half-Life as an experience is, a, is sort of a, um, a very crafted one. Uh, so we sort of perhaps Encounter to the way that over the last decade or so games have tended to spread to more open worlds, more systemic designs, more uh, sort of as a player, lots of head in any direction and we're going to programmatically generate stuff in front of you. Yeah. Half-Life is very much a crafted thing where we are going to create the best sort of path for you to walk through, where every step is designed and thought about carefully with respect to the previous and with respect to the, what's ahead of you. So there's a lot of attention paid to the pacing of things, the, the learning of things. We spend a lot of time thinking about what does the player know at any point in time and what are we trying to teach them here? And then once they've learned something, how are they gonna be rewarded for that? And, and what's the sort of the multiple ways that will be entwined with the other things they've learned and so on. So Half-Life a very crafted experience and what we're mixing with when we're doing that crafting are a set of tools Combat is obviously one of them, sort of the staple of most first-person shooters, but where we think a lot about what we call them sort of globally puzzles, but so sort of things where you're trying to solve some problem as a player. Yeah. Uh, exploration, where you're trying to like examine the space you're in, figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go. Um, perhaps learn things about the narrative and so on. Then uh, things around, usually there's some sort of key component around technology, or visuals, strengths, something that you haven't seen before. And so when we're thinking about each part of that crafted experience, like what's in the next room, what's in the room after that, we're pulling from these various threads and trying to think about what's the combination of them in this room that you haven't seen before, uh, such that it's sort of, it's a game about novelty, right? You are constantly being pulled forward because there's always something new around the next corner, some combination of the elements you've seen in, the, in a combination you haven't seen before, or some new element. And so when we, these various pieces of the DNA of Half-Life, when we started to, tinker with them in VR and explore them. We just found some of these worked really, really well, better than we've ever done before. And I think it's because of some of the aspects of VR turned out to work really well. It's much easier to look around, like just the fundamental ability of like just looking around. People do it more in VR. I mean, it's, it's sort of unclear to me why it's harder to move a mouse around than to look, move your head around, but maybe it's because you've spent your entire life looking around with your real head and not with a mouse. Uh, And people tend to, and just something as simple as that, which seems small, is incredibly important to us because as you look around and you see things, you pay more attention to things. And so over and over again, we've seen playtesters. It's really clear playtesters take take in more time to look around the world. They pay more attention to things. And that simple little thing makes all these parts of the Half-Life DNA just work better. We can build more interesting puzzles. We can make exploration much more rewarding. Our combat can get better if you just pay more attention as a player. Uh, and in the past, we've always had to deal with the sort of dynamic range of players who just hold the W key and sprint past everything and the players who, so in, in VR, that, the dynamic range, it seems like everyone's much more uh, in the space where everyone's taking that time and spending it. And so, um, you know there's some there's some really, really neat uh, things we got to do in this product that are sort of building on top of things we've done in previous half games that we could, we should have, could have technically done them in the past but I don't think players would afford us on it they wouldn't have wanted to yeah. uh, and for some and just due to the different the ways that people play VR differently they they came along for that ride and that let us put even more time and effort into that and so uh, yeah we're, we're really excited about, about that sort of stuff I think.
0: So is it, it almost sounds like not that it has to be adversarial but it's almost a a rebuttal to the to the action genres move into kind of more dynamically generated open world.
2: <laughs> it's not a rebuttal. <laughs> I mean, I play all those games and love them too. Um, I think, it, you know, I think it's just, this is the bit that we really like building. Um, and, you know, I think all these games have, you know, they're good in their own way. Like I love playing the Metro games. I think they're fantastically crafted experiences. I love them so much. Right. At the same time, I love playing Battlefield and Far Cry. And, you know, I, paid a huge amount of the most of Far Cry 5, you know. So, you know, I don't think there's, there's, neither of these are right. They're different experiences and I really enjoy both of them. I was worried for a little while when it looked like, wait, are we gonna lose the sort of crafted, you know, experience entirely if everyone moves to sort of these open world things. Uh, But, you know, it it, it seems like whenever that sort of shift occurs, it just creates more demand for the other experience that gets filled by someone else coming along.
1: So Chris, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, Robin. You were talking earlier about how, for instance, um, you know, working with Alex as a character, you're not you're not just talking to people who have written her dialogue. You're talking to animators. You're talking to level designers. You're talking to everyone else. I and mean, I think part of what part of what you're sort of getting at there is that the thing that makes up a Half-Life game or any game is like the the totality of all of all the the parts of it that the player is experiencing, including all the, all the like visual assets, like what you're hearing, the spaces you're in, everything else. And I think I think with this game, if if this game was a VR game, unlike prior Half-Life games, and an open world game, unlike prior Half-Life games, and Alex Vance as opposed to Gordon Freeman and all these things, and you're changing like every element of it, I think you almost ask, well, what is, what about it is a Half-Life game at that point? Which doesn't mean you couldn't make a Half-Life game about which all of those things are true. You, I'm sure you definitely could, but I think there's, something about this experience that so much of it feels new and recontextualizing it's I, I personally think it's extremely valuable to have like oh yeah this is a half- life experience like this this in many ways feels like what I really deeply want out of a half-life experience yeah. like you know capital H capital L I guess it's always capital because it's a proper noun but <laughs> you know what I mean and and so you can I feel like when you when you capture enough of that sense of like this this powerfully feels like this thing i really really understand um you can do all kinds of new things on top of it and and like blow it out in all kinds of other ways and the the player gets both of that like they get the familiarity they get the sense memory they get everything else but that's like sort of preparing them for all kinds of other things that they're doing in totally different ways like how robin describes in vr how you interact with the world and look around it and how different that is than using a mouse and keyboard or a controller and, and like the way you aim even though it's combat it's combat against you know combine soldiers and sort of aliens and so on um, and in a lot of ways it's familiar but in a lot of ways at a really like almost atomic level it's very different you know so you're, you're layering all this novelty and like new processes on top of something um, that you understand as being very half-life
0: so you having you came off of Firewatch, which I think is yeah. one of the best written games I've played in at least the last five years, if not sure. longer. I mean, it's, uh, it's tremendous. So it's, what sort of were you able to, what did you learn from that experience that has, that has helped you coming into Valve and contributing to this project?
1: Uh, well, for one thing, when we started on Firewatch, um, it is absolutely the case that Half-Life was a massive touchstone. Like the the incredibly uncompromising first person perspective. Like yeah. situating you deep, deep, deep into the physical place of this character in the sense that you're not cutting away to cutscenes, you're not I mean all, all of which are valid techniques, but the way that Half-Life really consistently immerses you in one character's perspective contiguously throughout the game was hugely influential to, to us. Um, and Firewatch does cut narratively, but never outside of the player character. It's always in that perspective. Um, and so we, one of the things that was kind of surprising to me working on Firewatch was despite it being a game without some of the things Robin's talking about, like combat puzzles, things like that, um, you end up actually facing a lot of very similar Challenges that you have to face in a game like this, which are things like, what is the player going to? Be, what is their eye going to be drawn to? What is their path throughout the world? Like, what if they counteract your assumption about what they're going to try first? You know, what if what if they look over here instead of over there? They do it in this order rather than that order. Like, what is their? Like, what is the scale of the world relative to them, and what does that mean for the systems you're putting in the game? I mean, all these are all things that we sort of had to realize we were dealing with, kind of just as much as if we were in. A more traditionally systemically complex game um so we spent a lot of time thinking about that stuff on firewatch and then coming on to this game which is obviously very combat driven but also has a lot of environmental storytelling a lot of narrative a lot of environment art you know a lot of sort of exploration and again as robin says very granular exploration because you're you're moving around i mean that that almost feels closer to a Firewatch to me in the sense that, you know, you're, you're moving through that world often at a slow pace. It's player driven. You can run through Firewatch. I mean, people do, but there, you know, any game will encourage you on average more to interact with things in one direction than another. And I think both of those games really encourage, and I think reward deep exploration it's just that also in this game you've got all these other sort of combat systems and and puzzle systems and all these other things going on on top of it but the the fundamental like what does it mean for the player to interact and be in this world um i feel like i learned a ton working on firewatch that is like sort of shockingly um uh relevant here um yeah they're very interesting experiences to have had back to back
0: robin you were telling me i'm hoping you'll Tell this on camera now. You're telling me about something interesting <laughs> it's yesterday. Time to get unfiltered. About uh, take the
1: filters off. <laughs>
0: about uh, just the sort of you know. You're talking. you Guys are both talking a lot about kind of the the level of detail and bringing the players into this world. Um, the sound work and the the scripting work that goes on. Like I, after you told me that story, I started to notice why well, I went went back to Playmore yesterday about even if I would just kind of like lean over or, or crouch down just the the audio of this character that I, I can't even see, that if I look down is not there, but can you kind of talk about some of those insane uh, scripting and, and sound things that you guys are doing? I, I don't actually days? know all of it. <laughs> I
2: keep finding out more things they're doing. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a fun, so one of the things we learned many years ago uh, that we i think used a lot in half-life 2 was the idea of uh, building technology where each discipline each sort of creative discipline is as unconstrained as possible in applying their discipline to the product Uh, wherever we could we tried to make it so that uh you know if you're a sound person you can put sound into the game and hook it up as much as you can to all the things you want uh, without needing to get anyone else involved and we, you know, Half-Life 2, we achieved a level of that that we didn't manage in Half-Life 1. And with Source 2 this time around, we re- it was really uh, at the forefront of our mind. We've spent a lot of time on the tool side of things in Source 2 relative to Source 1. And so uh, Half-Life Alex is sort of the first time we've had a bunch of audio people with essentially a bunch of like superpowers they haven't had in the past. Uh, and the net result of that has been they've produced an ungodly amount of sound uh, uh, and they have... Tied it to the sort of state of the world to a greater extent than they've ever been able to. There's essentially, uh, you know, little bits of code that they they write and control associated with every sound in the game, if if they want it, uh, and they can feed sort of any information from the game into it. Uh, and so some examples of um, of how they've used that uh, that sort of stuck in my head when I heard about them were things like uh, we have built a virtual character essentially. Uh, that has a set of clothing that they have simulated how that clothing responds to the player's movement uh, and they use that to make sound. when you're, so in the case of teleport, for example, if you're playing in the blink or the shift modes, if you teleport over a ledge or around a corner, uh, they're going to adjust the sounds that your claws make will be affected by you falling some distance or if you move quickly over a short distance, over, a sh- uh, sorry, over a long distance, or if you move short distances, it will affect the amount of noise that your claws make and how they move around. And then um, if you're playing continuous mode, we feed that same information in as well. And so you get, it's not just some looping sound that's played or anything it's actually you can you know fully aware of like just your, your you know your body standing crouching and movement and zip changes and all that sort of stuff the surfaces you're working on and that sort of stuff you're brushing through plants you know all that sort of jazz um, so uh, it's been pretty exciting to see all the ways that you know those sorts of um, Yeah, things happen as a result of empowering individual disciplines as opposed to, you know, having some kind of gate in there where they need to get some help from some other discipline uh, just to be able to employ their their craft.
0: So it's it's stuff that, it's like most players probably won't even consciously notice that.
2: They don't, but it's amazing. Sound is, you know, I'm not a sound audio engineer or anything, so they can always speak to this better, but sound is just one of those things where uh, people often... uh, don't they will appreciate, but not sort of in the forefront of their mind. Notice all of the work you've put in, uh, but yeah, I, I think that's in some ways our role to play as the creators in things like this. We fundamentally we have to think about every part of the product more than players ever do. Right? That's sort yeah. of so. You know every you know our hope is always that whenever players sort of lift up a rock in our game there's a bunch more work under it than they imagined that, that could be possible uh, and uh, you know one of the great things about half life Alex it was so fun to work on is that because players like paid so much attention, we could really justify spending that time and everything so it was really you know sometimes in you know, previous games, half of 2, Half-Life 1, when you've got a player who can literally run at a, at a speed that is, you know, faster than a human can. Uh, you know, you're looking at, you watch a playtest and a test. Playtest, one playtester might interact with an object in some way that makes you really want to, oh, I want to make that better. I want to add some value to that. And like, yeah, but, you know, 90% of other testers barrel through that room at hundred times an hour, and there's a bug in the next room, and it's so like, yeah, I got to go fix that bug. It's more important. Uh, but in this game, you know, it, we got to spend that time on everything because players all do do that. That's, That's cool. So that was the fun.
0: So on, on that note for both of you guys, so how does, how does Source 2 help propel Alex forward and, and vice versa of Alex propelling Source 2 forward?
2: Uh, yes and yes. The thing I just touched on is it is actually a huge deal. And, and, but it's, it's in this way that I think is, it's hard to point to a specific thing uh, in Half-Life Alyx that is the result of some of the tool changes, but everything in Half-Life Alyx is better as a result of the tool changes. So for example, another thing we did here that was, it seems like a, a simple thing, but became hugely, had a huge impact on the product, was we significantly improved the ability for multiple people and multiple disciplines to work on the same area of the game at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that allowed you know for any given map in the game there's a level designer who's building geometry and all that sort of stuff but there's an audio person say who wants to go in and they've got a bunch of sounds and they want to be able to control where they're coming from and timings and all that sort of stuff you may have artists coming in and moving geometry around and wanting to change stuff you may have an ai programmer going in there and wanting to adjust a bunch of stuff that that how the ai in the past uh, with source one it was just hard enough that often we tended to push that stuff through the level designer. Um, there might be a little bit too much risk in changing it for, you know, if you're not the level designer yeah. and so on. And so we did that stuff, but just to a much lesser extent, you know, because it would get filtered through one person. And so by, the, by allowing everyone to basically just work independently in, in levels at the same time, um, Oh, I left animators out, animators was huge, empowering animators to be able to basically go in and, and customize animation somewhere in the game to their heart's content, uh, modify geometry or whatever they needed to do that, um, that was huge as well. So as a result of just a simple thing like that, that Source 2 enabled, there is a density of content in Half-Life Alyx that is just far greater than we've done in the past. And You know, so I can't point to like, hey, that is there because of this tool thing, but I can tell you an enormous amount of the game is impacted by just a simple thing like that. And Source 2 is essentially that writ large. Our goal with Source 2 was uh, fundamentally to focus on the, the tools by which we build games. We were really interested in that. We felt like that was our big constraining factor, you know, that... Rendering technology, all that sort of stuff. Like it's advanced, it's straightforward in a lot of ways. This rendering programs are screaming at me right now, probably. Um, although. <laughs> literally the most <least laughs> straightforward discipline,
1: like on the planet. Whatever. is a bunch high of math. High-end graphics program.
2: <laughs> 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 um, but Yeah, I did make that very interesting, so they're all happy again. Um, anyways, uh, you know, but it was tools that we felt like when we looked at how. What is it that we're leaving Half-Life Two? In the episodes and and uh, Source One games feeling like uh, is hampering us the most creatively in terms of achieving the things we think customers really want from us. We felt it was tools that were the main thing.
0: That seems like a really good advertisement for for Source Two. I think you might get some emails from developers <laughs> like, "Wait, we can a bunch of our team can work on a thing at the same time without having to re-render, you know, redo a new build." That sounds that sounds uh. Like, it's just a, a massive bottleneck. I'm sure up. most
2: other engines do this <laughs> already, too. We're always late to the party.
1: Um, well, meanwhile, I've only, at Valve, I've only ever worked with Source 2, so as far as I'm concerned, I take that all for granted. That's right. And it's not very impressive <laughs> at all. Well, it's time for you to go back. This I've been here. Just your day-to-day <laughs> life. <laughs> yeah. um, no,
0: it's very nice. So you guys refuted a rumor about Left 4 Dead 3 not too long ago, uh, saying, quote, we did briefly explore some Left for Dead next-gen opportunities a few years ago, uh, and I hear the giggling already, so we're going to continue with this. It's going to get even more on That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but we are, absolutely not not working, up. we are absolutely not working on anything Left for Dead related now, and haven't for years. So, can I ask sort of what you guys were playing around with conceptually, and, and how far that got?
2: Uh... Trying to remember. I mean, we use parts of Left 4 Dead. We use parts of the Left 4 Dead level as like the first bit of level geometry to start building in Source 2. Yeah. And so bits of that got out. It was a, essentially a rendering test, um, and people thought that meant we were working on Left 4 Dead. And so some some of that we're responding to is that. Um, later on, we built some stuff. There was, you know, Source 2. We've built a number of different things over the years. Like technology. You could write a whole book, in fact I think someone should go and some gaming historian should go write a whole book about how engines are like one of the most interesting um, problems when it comes to game development and probably the source of more like collapse of game studios than perhaps any other thing in that building technology is, is an incredibly hard thing to do uh, because you, if you don't know what your game is, you don't know what technology to build until you've built some technology you don't know what game you can build and so you're constantly going back and forth uh, and having the wrong technology for the game you're trying to build can be catastrophic for you Uh, and once you've built an engine in a game, there's this feeling that like we've solved it, right? Like we've we've built Half-Life 1, we've built Source 1, we've, you know, we've figured it out. But the problem is you can, you you know, you might be able to build that same game once, maybe twice more before customers say, that's great, I want something new. And now you've got to build new technology again, and you're back in the the high high risk part again. So uh, we built lots of different things, you know, as part of building technology in Source 2, there's constantly, you know, technology people saying, okay, but what are we going to do with this? I need to know what kind of constraints I have, what kind of requirements I have. And so we're always, you know, there were groups here who would generate a sort of a product in mind uh, that could att- that would attempt to be a target for Source 2. Uh, and so those things, you know, a couple of those were Left 4 Dead related things, but none of them sort of reached the point where we're like, oh, now this is a product team that we're going to build a big product around. Uh, you know, uh, there were more tools for moving Source 2 forward and they didn't sort of get past that point, I think.
0: Does that apply to, to Portal as well? I know you told Jeff Keeley when when he was here shooting the, the first of his series about, I guess you tr- you tried, you played with it in VR, but were worried about motion sickness with, uh, with, with the launching of yeah. the people through yeah, the Yeah, we air. looked
2: at our various IPs, you know, when we started looking at, you know, what's the, so before we selected Half-Life, we were just looking at our various IPs, which is a really standard thing for us to do. You know, when you're trying to explore something new of course you start with well what are all the tools we've got from the past that could help us rapidly learn here Uh, and so we looked at various ips and yeah portal was one of them we didn't get very far in that it was pretty clear when we looked at portal as a whole like oh wow if we can't do player movement you know not as a result of their choice but by launching them momentum all that sort of stuff standing on a thing and launching then a whole swath of portals uh, puzzles, you know, the back half of Portal or more goes away, right. uh, and would need some alternative thing. And the whole point of using existing IPs is to, you know, get st- get a head start on trying to understand and learn. And if we start by taking away one of the most interesting things from um, from the IP we're looking at, then it doesn't seem like we're making a good choice there.
0: That's because Chris, you must again. You Firewatch, one of the I think best written games. You you would probably you must be you must daydream about writing for a Portal game now that you're here. Oh,
1: God, that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I actually weirdly haven't specifically thought about that a ton, just like individually, but not because I don't think that would be fun, but I guess because Portal feels so... I, I don't know that I've been here long enough to feel like I'm part of the people who made Portal because I didn't touch it at all, obviously. Um, and that game, those two games, but um, particularly I remember how I felt felt playing Portal 1 for the first time actually here at the Valve office, or not in this building, but Valve's office at the time. I remember just being so totally struck dumb by it. Like what an unbelievably brilliant merid- marriage of narrative and gameplay, like just yeah. so incredible that I, I feel like my brain would stop me from idly daydreaming about being someone who would make that because it's like, no, that's like really good. It's like extremely good. Like I wouldn't like self-insert into that like fantasy, um, but I obviously, if it happened, I would love to work on it. But I mean, who knows?
0: Uh, Robin, on the, on the Team Fortress side, um, how do you feel about kind of the current state of the industry with regard to microtransactions and where things are going? Because you've changed Team Fortress 2 a lot from the monetization perspective.
2: Yeah, um, I mean, Team Fortress was sort of in a lot of ways our, you know, our learning tool. Right. We, we felt like there was a bunch of things we needed to understand um, because on sort of the face of it, we couldn't understand. It seemed like microtransactions should be a customer positive thing, that there should be something people should be, you know, at the end of the day, if we're saying, how how about instead of you give us some money up front before you know the game's any good, how about you play it? And then if you like it, you can give us some money. Uh, and we were also hitting a point in Team Fortress where bizarrely we would get emails from fans saying, I've been playing this game for like you know four years or something. Uh, do you guys have a donation tip jar or something <laughs> like? At the point where fans are mailing our corporation asking if we have a donation tip jar because they you know they uh, want to give us extra money was a strange thing. And and that certainly fit the model we had in our heads, which was that at the end of the day it's not. I think people have this really weirdly adversarial relationship with customers where they think customers fundamentally don't want to give don't want to spend money they just want everything for free whereas we always think of it as people just want to spend their money on the things they like they yeah. really just want to like I, I personally really enjoy spending money on the bands and the, the artists and the movie makers and so on who build things that i love yeah. um i wish i could you know give them more if it meant they'd make more <laughs> and so uh you know so to us, the, uh, Team Fortress 2 was really the place where we tried to figure out how to do that. We're like, we know we've got a bunch of people who are enjoying this and they're mailing us and telling us that they're enjoying it and that uh, if there was some other way, they, they would prefer... It seems like they would prefer to spend their money on this than another game. And so we were trying to figure out, well, what is it that they like? What would they want? Um, and it, I think it, you know, it took us years and we're still learning enormously about... I think that was the other thing that was sort of shocking to us at the time was that People seem to, the industry seemed to have already decided, it understood how microtransactions worked. You know, this is 2007-ish, 2008-ish or so, somewhere yeah. around there. Or maybe it's a few, no, sorry, that's when we released, so it's a few years after that, 2011 or something, right? I think um, there were, you know, microtransaction sort of stuff going on in uh, like web games and stuff like that, and there was all this sort of stuff written about how you know you've got to like add friction to your game and then people can pay you to take it away and all all this sort of stuff and it just seemed really unlikely to us given how young microtransactions were at that time or even just service games in general were at that time that the industry had already figured out like the optimal way Uh, and we felt like everything that was being done then was basically teaching players you know that they were uh, you know To regret every bit of the dollar they spent uh, you know you would play a game and and just regret it and so um so we to us we thought there's got to be a way to do this we've got to be able to figure out a way to do this where this is a you know an addition that people enjoy and want um and that you know came with a set of things around like you know, making sure that still there was an enormous amount in the game that you still got for free or in the case of, as we figure out years later with Dota, it's like, you know, none of it, it's entirely cosmetic, none of it affects the core game itself, um, and so, yeah, I think we start that in TF2, but, man, we, you know, we're still learning today about those things, and I think some of the stuff we, you know, TF2 sort of the roughest version of it, really, because we're, we're just learning so much, and we, uh, and we don't know what we're doing and I think customers at the time also didn't really know what to make of it and it took us a while to figure that out but you know when I look at Counter-Strike and, and Dota today where I think we've really sort of figured out the way to do that in a way that customers appreciate that uh, doesn't feel like You have to do it if you're uninterested and and the the good side effect of that is we get to take games like Counter-Strike and Dota and say you know what if you don't want to spend any money at all you can still play these amazing games completely for free because we figured out a way to do this that that other customers who are happy to spend some money enjoy.
0: Does uh, does Source 2 get your brain thinking about Team Fortress 3 proper at all?
2: (laughs) I mean, clearly we're going to have to just do all the threes now, right? I mean, <laughs> you start. it sounded like you, you and Chris are about to announce Portal 3, so... Yeah, we're um, doing it. Yeah, so... I mean, when
1: we get to gonna... my desk, I'll show you the... Okay, that's right. Oh, wait, no, don't we
2: need Source 3? <laughs> that's right, yeah. All right. Yeah, all right. Filters are coming back <laughs> on. <laughs> right. um,
0: does... Does... Uh, I guess, what does the end... What does success look like for Alex from either the, the financial side and the sort of critical player reception side, like are there, are there goals for that? Or do you guys not have to worry about that being with no like publishing overlord?
2: I mean, we don't have to worry about it in the sense that like, oh no, we may have to find a new job if no one likes the game. Um, we'll be incredibly depressed. Uh, but no, I think on the financial side, what matters is that we can continue to drive VR forward in a way where a lot of other studios who aren't perhaps in the in the position wherein are able to build viable businesses in that space, I think that so the sales are very important in that sense right um, it doesn't matter how critically acclaimed it is if at the end of the day people don't buy it, and the developers other VR developers looking to saying, "Well, I guess I still can't make VR games yet." Um, and there's obviously an audience there we've seen a bunch of success in uh, a bunch of the recent titles but we really hope to just expand that significantly so yeah. that both all the titles that have shipped in the past see an increase in in uh, you know their customer bases but also that more devs will jump aboard and say like you know what this does look really interesting um on that side uh, but you know on that said i think but for most of us we're really worried about the critical side of things we care a heck of a lot about what half-life fans think about it what vr fans think about it what new Half-Life uh, fans think about it um, you know I think that to some extent some of the questions that the you know all of our fans have asked over the last decade or so were fan- questions that we've asked ourselves like can we still do this do we still have it you know those are questions which uh, you know probably we've spent an equivalent or more time worrying about than our fans even have and so you know hopefully I think one of the things we'll look towards and one of the reasons, like, the moment you finish playing some, we're like, hey, so what do you think? is because we all really want to, you know, find out. Like, we think we've built something really good, uh, and we really hope that it is good, and we hope their fans think. it's. In fact, it's terribly unfair, I think, that uh, if this is going out after um, the game is out, whoever's watching this knows what, everything about it, <laughs> and we true. have no idea right now. <laughs> so,
1: hopefully they liked it. Um, will, you, will either of you read reviews? I'll read some reviews. I I actually think you were asking about being in the press and in development. I feel like one of the things that was like hugely helpful to me relative to a lot of developers I know is I'm not like torn up by reading, by the sort of fear of reading reviews or things like this. Because I'm just like, yeah, it's going to be what it's going to be. Like I was on the other side of it being the person, you know, you're worried about. Um, I think, I think. The reaction we've got to this game has been pretty positive so far, which has been nice. There's been an unusual thing about it that is very different to anything I've worked on, which is that we announced it like four months before it's coming out. So I can only imagine what it was like for you guys, because I've only been here for like two years, but you guys, you were working on it for what, almost five?
2: Four years. Four, it's four basically years? Four years as old. Yeah, so you spent March. so
1: much longer than I did not having any public reaction to this thing.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I mean the way we handle that is... As always, we started playtesting this a long time ago. In fact, um, it's sort of amazing to us that we managed to playtest some of it as early as we did, and yet it's still <laughs> still like, I mean, there were sort of rumors, but no real confirmation or anything uh, for so long. it's really good filters. it's yeah, <laughs> very filtered. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't remember when the first, it would have been in that first year, I think. We had, you know, five, ten minutes of gameplay there that, Someone, I'm sure, we, we showed it to someone outside um, the game, you know, outside the company in, the, in that first year. So, so I don't know how many playtests we've seen play through the game now, but it would know, be over a hundred. It would be my guess. And so, yeah, we're very happy with their reaction, and we, uh, so we're as confident as you can ever be, I guess. But there's yeah. always that feeling of, I mean, you uh, never know. Yeah, you've built. Right, I mean, game development is about building decisions on top of decisions on top of decisions, uh, and one of the things we loved so much when we sort of spent a decade essentially focused on service games—you uh, know—I remember that transition. It was just—it was just wonderful to go from like that level of fear you feel at the end of like a five-year project, like Half-Life Two, where you're pressing on CDs and putting in boxes and sending to stores, and then you find out if everyone hates it or not. You know, you find out uh it's the combination of both the level that the the weight of that is terrifying, but also it's just a crappy way to learn It is just a terrible way to Try and figure out how to get good at something if you get told every five years if you're any good at it, and then try and figure out from the reaction you've got what of the decisions in the five years you made were good and which ones were bad. It just, it's really hard to get better at game making like that or anything. Uh, the, and the
1: world is also very different at the end of those five years, yeah. like you're releasing <laughs> Everything a is different, different yeah. universe. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah it's, it's a terrible way. And so, playtesting was at least a proxy for that right you could you could work for a week and bring yeah. a playtester in and and so you'll get a sense of of how you were doing from week to week with playtesters but uh, that still didn't tell you know maybe you were just always making small changes and then when you took the totality of it all and gave to people it was terrible you didn't know so moving to service games it was wonderful because like wow like we can really learn faster here we get to release constantly that's sort of like the the journalism sort of space you were talking about earlier it is kind of
1: like that
2: in some games yeah and uh so i remember it it was an incredible relief we all loved that and it's funny coming back to this where there's a level of like excitement now around this that i've missed as well like if if service game development is sort of like this you know big box sort of things like this are like this and so uh you know and we're all older and i think a little less wound up around like how we you know like there's i think we all think okay i think we're 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 okay this game development thing like if people don't like it it's not like we're going to suddenly decide we're all terrible overnight or anything Uh, it'll be interesting things to learn from it and uh you know and
1: uh, yeah. Well, and I feel like being in any creative field, you have to just accept that not everyone can like everything. Yeah. I mean, you have to make something that you like and that hopefully enough other people like. But, you know, part I feel like a really important part of the job is accepting, like, tastes are different, but that's also the thing that makes the thing that you are making particularly valuable to the people who do like it, is that not everything appeals to to them or to the other person or whatever. So when people find the thing that does appeal to them, it's like really, really affirming and powerful. Um, so hopefully we're on the right side of that. <laughs> I,
2: I sort of agree with that. Oh, I do agree with that. But at the same time, I've always thought the really fun bit about game development or the, the interesting challenge is to really just try and make something that works for as many people as possible. I think uh, and I don't, I think some people think of that as like a, a process of watering down, whereas I find it much more of a really interesting game challenge. It's like playing the best game. is like, it's a puzzle solving problem. It's like, all right, so I know these people like this, these people didn't like that. How do I try and make it so these people like more without breaking anything these people like? And it's just, you can make a game out of it. It can be really fun. And I think it's, at the end of the day, it's the thing that makes it hard and interesting if we were to sort of arbitrarily decide, you know what, everyone who likes this kind of thing, we don't have to care about them because they won't like our kind of thing. Then I think you can get very, you can winnow down to this safe place insular. and yeah. it's sure and, and it's easier. I think it's less fun as a game developer and it's, um, you know, it's less, I guess, interesting. I think the interesting challenge is you know taking something we love like we've built this experience we really like it and our goal is like how do we keep it's core how do we keep it's you know its heart not changed unchanged but still make it put it into execute on it in a way so as many different kinds of people can enjoy it and uh, i think that's been really important in the past um, for us and i think like for example portal there were a bunch of people in the as we were going through building portal where, that were when we went and talked to, uh, sort of showed it some people outside the building and talked to some uh, publishers and so on, there were a lot of people who were very quick to tell us, well, the hardcore if, if first person shooter crowd won't like this, but I think this is really interesting to like adventure gamers and, and female gamers, like they would say that sort of stuff. To it. And it was just, they were so quick to try and walk away from the idea that, uh, that you know, they'll just carve off whole chunks of people and say, "There's no way they'll like it," so you don't have to care about them anymore. And that seemed really uninteresting to us. And in the end, I think they were very wrong on that. Uh, you know, the number one product you are most likely to own, other than Portal, if you own Portal, is Counter-Strike. Sorry, not own play, but you know. So you know, that's somewhat is the function of the enormous size of the Counter-Strike community. But it just goes to show that, like this, this I think people are quick to carve up gamers into hardcore and casual and. You know gender, all these things, and it's really unclear to us that there's really any truth behind any of that. And as a result, we spend a bunch of our time just you know a lot of the playtests we're bringing in tend to be people who are least like us, right We know how we will react to our game, but let's put this in front of someone who doesn't play VR. Let's put in someone who plays a huge amount of VR. Let's put in someone who plays you know only this kind of VR game. Let's put this in front of someone who's played no half life before Let's put in front of, you know you've got to do all these things and and in our experience you you often find, that solving, making the game work for one of those people improves it for a bunch of the other people. It's not like, well, we gotta take the cool thing out because that guy didn't understand it. And so, it's not that. It's, it's much more of a, a problem solving and interesting approach.
0: All right, uh, last question. Leave us with this. Uh, now that it's done, Half-Life Alex has done, a new Half-Life game has been made. Is that, like, do you feel like we did it? We've, we've said something in this universe? that's it for a while? Or are you, are you guys now, especially as more of a newcomer to the company, Chris, are you guys more energized like that you want to keep going and, st- and, and play around in Half-Life some more? Uh, I think much more the latter than the former, for
1: sure. Yeah. I mean, like as you say, I've only been here for a couple of years, so I didn't work on any other Half-Life game before this, but it's really clear that people at the studio really, really like working in this universe and have really enjoyed making this game. And like, why wouldn't you, you know? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Um, And it's been really, uh, I mean, you know, again, for me, someone only been here a couple of years, it is sort of amazing to um, come in contact with all this stuff that I recognize so deeply, but see what it means in a modern context. Um, That's like incredibly exciting and paints all kinds of pictures. And I don't, like they're all hazy pictures. I don't know what any of them are, but like, it it feels like people are very excited about the Half-Life universe for sure. Robin,
2: yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, everyone liked the game <laughs> and they want more of it. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I can only really echo what Chris said. We've really enjoyed building this. It was a heck of a lot of fun to go back to, and you know, sort of deliver on I think what hopefully everyone wanted from us. Uh, and I I hope we get to build more of it. Uh, I hope they didn't, everyone didn't hate it, and now we have to slink away and spend another 13 years trying to figure out what our next <laughs> shot at the whole thing is. <laughs> so, yes, I yeah, hope we uh, hope you hear you know, see more from us a lot sooner than last
0: time. Half-Life 3 confirmed. We did it. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> Chris, Robin, thank you guys so much. Thank you. For more from the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the games industry, stay tuned for a new episode of IGN Unfiltered every month.